0: kids are here, my lovely children, I think that's what he said a little while ago, and I don't know what that says for my other three, uh, if they're not lovely or not, but um, we do have three that are out of the house and four that are still with us, and we are grateful that the Lord has blessed us with uh, with them, and uh, we are thankful again for the opportunity to be here. If you have a Bible with you, if you would take it and turn with me to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, <coughs> Acts chapter 13. And let's have a word of prayer uh, as we come to the Word of God together today. Father, we ask your blessing upon both the reading and the preaching of the Word of God today. We pray for your help and for your blessing on it. May Christ be honored. May his church be encouraged. May our souls be exhorted to strive further after the calling that you have given us as your people we do ask oh god that you would uh, for the display of your own fame and glory this day that you would send forth your word even from this place we ask in jesus name amen as i'm praying i realize i forgot to hit this little button they told me to hit a button and uh is that the magic button there we go i have a thumbs up from somebody all right thank you brother all right Well, if you are in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, this is where most of our attention is going to be today. I had uh, one of the brothers read a chapter or a portion of a chapter from Isaiah 49 verses 1 to 13, which is a text in the Old Testament known as a servant song, and there are several of those in the book of Isaiah in particular, and we're going to look back at Isaiah 49 later on. It is is imperative that we understand the nature of what the servant songs are because they will come to bear on the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. Specifically, they're going to come to bear on the ministry and the mission of the Apostle Paul. And then by extension, their importance will bear on the church today as well. And that is where we're we're hoping to get by the time we are done this morning. So, In Acts chapter 13, let me begin by just reading from the text that I have for us today. Beginning in Acts chapter 13 in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has Brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, Sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, that through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed. So that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things be spoken to them. The next Sabbath... Now. When the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to them. They were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. This is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. Paul takes three missionary journeys that we know of. Some scholars anticipate he may have taken a fourth that would have taken him all the way to Spain. But the book of Acts recounts three journeys for us, and this is the beginning of the first one. Paul finds himself, as is very common in a synagogue, in Antioch, of Pisidia in the area of modern-day Turkey. He brings a message to the Jews For the gospel is as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 to the Jew first and after that to the Gentile. Paul would frequently go to the synagogue every town that he would uh, find himself in on his missionary journeys but at this particular point like most of his other experiences in the Jewish synagogues the jews reject the message that paul is preaching and paul makes this declaration toward the end of our section in verses 46 and 47 that he is going to turn now to the gentiles what i'd like to do in our time that we have together today is i want to focus our attention on two verses and we could even say just one verse 47 but verses 46 and 47 are kind of going to form the focus of our attention from that passage, I wanna lay out four things to kind of help us just understand the text and, and, and what Paul is trying to say. And from those four points, I'd like to end with four points of application. So that's kind of where we're going. I don't know what it's like with you. My kids like to know where we're going. Uh, we just like, my wife and I like to hop in the car and just drive and not know where we're going. We just know we're not having to be you know, responsible at the moment. Uh, we're just driving somewhere. And, um, but we usually like to know where we're going, don't we? And we'd like to know when we get there. So that's where we're going. I'm going to focus our attention on 46 and 47, make four points of exposition and Lord willing, four points of application. So look with me again, if you would, in verses 46 and 47, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Paul and Barnabas have offered this response to a group of people that are identified back in verse 45 as the Jews it's a very interesting term the Jews and it's very specific it is a term that comes up over and over again especially in the writings of Luke in Acts in particular this particular term the Jews is used 52 times now we're not trying to count occurrences to think that now we know something we No, it occurs 52 times, but of those 52 times, 34 of those times, it is used to point to a malevolent group of people that stand in opposition to the advancement of the mission of Christ, specifically that of the proclamation of Christ in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In fact, when we consider this malevolent group 32 times used or 34 times used in the book of Acts, 33 of those are used specifically directed at Paul himself. We could say the Jews, whoever this group of people are, they dogged the heels of the Apostle Paul throughout his missionary journeys. And it's not just as if it's one group of guys, like, you know, four guys here and they just follow him everywhere. They make sure they know his itinerary and they travel with him. No, they they just seem to appear everywhere throughout the narrative of the book of Acts. Paul finds them in Damascus, he finds them in Pisidian Antioch here in our text, he finds them in chapter 14 in Iconium, chapter 17 in Thessalonica, he finds them in chapter 18 in Achaia, in chapter 20 in Greece, and later in chapter 20 he finds them dogging his heels once again. Just let that sink in for a moment. This is a group of people that refuse to embrace the gospel of the Apostle Paul. And they so hate the gospel of the Apostle Paul that they don't want anyone else to have the gospel of the Apostle Paul either. Perhaps you've heard of the story of the dog in the manger. Now, it's a little Aesop's fable, uh, so maybe you'll have to you know, reach way back to childhood to think whenever you might have heard those One of Aesop's fables, The Dog in the Manger, is about a dog that actually finds his way in a barn. And the dog decides he's going to lay down on this big old stack of hay. Along comes an ox. Well, the ox needs the hay. The ox wants to eat the hay. The dog just wants to selfishly lay in the hay. And he doesn't want the ox to have the hay. The dog begins to bark and, you know, snarl and, you know, chase the ox away. Here's a dog in the manger point. These Jewish people have no use for the gospel. They have no interest in the gospel, and they don't want you to have the gospel either. F.F. F. Bruce notes in his commentary in the book of Acts says that Paul and Barnabas give a plain answer to the railing of the Jews. It was right and proper, they affirmed, that Jews should have the first opportunity of hearing and believing the good news. Had the Jews of Pisidia and Antioch accepted it, they would have become, or they would have had the honor of then turning and evangelizing their Gentile neighbors in fulfillment of Israel's word, world mission that was outlined in text like we heard in Isaiah 49. But if they would not receive the light themselves, they could not be allowed to pursue a dog-in-the-manger policy. The life of the age to come had been brought near to them here and Now, as God's free gift in Christ, if they showed themselves unworthy of it by refusing to accept it, there were others who would appreciate it, it would be offered directly to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul could not let the dog just stay in the manger and keep the hay from those who wanted it and needed it. One final word regarding these Jews is found in the culmination of Luke's work. And I would ask you to turn there in Acts chapter 28. It's tempting to follow the whole story and look at every possible text. We can see Paul engaging with the Jews. But I want you to notice this last one in Acts chapter 28. Uh, the, the, the breadth of the text stretches from 23 to 31. But I just want you to focus in with me here. Uh, toward the very end in verse 28. Paul finds himself in Rome. He is once again preaching the gospel. A group of Jews come to hear him. Uh, They react like all the other groups known as the Jews have. They reject his message. Therefore, he says in verse 28, Let it be known to you, that is, to you Jews, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. This is the third time in the book of Acts that we find this kind of phrasing. In Acts chapter 13, verse 46, in Acts chapter 18, verse 6, and in Acts chapter 28, verse 28. In all three of these places, Paul says from now on, the, the gospel will go to the Gentiles. And notice the emphatic statement he makes at the end of verse 28. They Will what? They will listen. They will hear. And in fact, you here this morning are representative of the fact that Gentiles, indeed, by the grace of God, have listened to the gospel. Bruce, again, notes in this particular text, he says... As before in Pisidian Antioch and in Corinth and elsewhere, so here again, but with a note of solemn finality. So this is a this is a very somber way for the book of of Acts to end with this this almost like this final declaration of him turning to the Gentiles. He announces that henceforth the Gentiles will have hear this word a priority in receiving, not an exclusivity. Because Paul continues to go to the Jews. Paul is a Jew. Paul longs for his kins- kinsmen to be redeemed. So it's not exclusive, but now it's as if there is a priority that is going to be given to the Gentiles and as Bruce says, receiving the message of salvation. One other writer makes this comment. He said the narrative at this point at the end of Acts 28 reaches a solemn climax, rejection on the one side, and unchecked success... And hope on the other. Now, it's with this thought of the Jews and the turning of the gospel to the Gentiles with a priority being given to them that I think we're ready to look back in Acts 13 in verse 47. So look again, if you would, with me in verse 47. The reason he says that he's turning to the Gentiles, he'd stated this back in verse 46. The reason he's turning to the Gentiles is, is stated in verse 47. Notice the opening word, for. This is the reason, this is the cause. Why are you doing this, Paul? Why are you turning away from the Jews, at least exclusively so, and turning now to the Gentiles? Well, it's because of the reason he's going to state here in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us. The Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Paul is the recipient of a divine command that now turns him from the Jews exclusively to turn to the Gentiles primarily. remember there was a time in the gospels where Jesus even sends the, the the disciples out and says go only what go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel remember the woman who comes to him one time and and she's pleading with him and says I haven't been sent to you I've only been sent to the Jews yes but even the what even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table and Jesus blesses her and brings the gospel good news to her as well So here we see this principal turn. It is a a dramatic historical turn. It's somewhat lost on us, I think, today in the 21st century. We're so far removed from the idea of the exclusivity of the Jews in in the ministry of Christ that it's almost like, well, we're sure the gospel is supposed to go to the nations of the world. But if you and I had lived a few thousand years ago, the idea that the gospel was supposed to go to all the nations of the world indiscriminately and not with this priority to this one ethnic location, this one geographical central location, it would be, it would be radical for you. It'd be like, I've, I've never heard of something like this before. Are you, are you sure they too can come to know the God of Israel? Are you sure they too, I mean, think about who they are. They're not like us. They're not as good as us. They're not as, as special as us. This would be a tough sell. Well, Paul sees in this particular statement, or Paul sets forward in this particular statement, four things regarding a command that he has received from God. These four things are its divine origin, its unlikely recipients, its covenantal nature. And its broad scope. When Paul hears from the Lord that this command is going to be pressed upon him, he sees this command coming from no other than God himself. He sees this command coming to himself as an unlikely recipient. He sees this command as bearing a covenantal nature, and he sees this command as expanding his horizons with a broad scope unlike any that he had thought of before. So consider with me these four things. It's divine origin, the divine origin of the command. The command to be light for the Gentiles and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth is for Paul and Barnabas full, full of divine authority. They find their commission in the Old Testament scriptures themselves. In fact, this verse, verse 47, is a quotation of, from isaiah 49 verse 6 the text that was read for us earlier one writer referred to isaiah 49 6 in particular as the great commission of the old testament You and I often associate the Great Commission with Matthew 28, 18-20. All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you, what? Always to the very end of the age. But in Isaiah 49, there's another text that is very much a commission. I'd like to turn you to that if you would flip back there in your bible to isaiah chapter 49 i want us to read this particular verse now we won't take time to read the entire text we read isaiah 49 1 to 13 earlier i just want to draw your attention to verse 6 isaiah 49 verse 6 He, that is God, in the particular context here, says it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. And in this particular text, the servant of the Lord is a distinct individual. And we'll talk more about him in a moment. But God says to the servant, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. We could say that's like leg one of the mission. Leg one is that you should go out and restore the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel to God. But that's too light a thing. That's too little of a thing. He says at the end of verse 6, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now that should sound familiar to you because that's just the quotation uh, that that Luke is recording in Acts chapter 13, verse 47. Isaiah 49.6 is part of a larger text spanning the first 13 verses of Isaiah 49. It is, as we've said, a servant song. Now there are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. For note takers and for guys who want to look this up later on, Isaiah 42, 1-9... Isaiah 42, 1 to 9, Isaiah 49, 1 to 13, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11, and Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And that's the one that you probably are most familiar with. That's the one that talks about the suffering servant who bears our iniquities, and uh, the the punishment that was due us fell upon him, and my servant justifies the many, and texts like that uh, that are found fulfilled in Christ. In fact, each of these servant songs points to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament as the servant of the Lord or as he is referred to here uh, as a suffering servant or as he's pictured here as a suffering servant. We don't have time to trace all four of these out in the New Testament, but I think you could easily do that. If you had a Bible with some cross-references, you could probably do some digging and see the connections in each of these passages to the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah 49.6, It is the Lord God who sets apart his servant for a specific task. And notice this task is twofold. The first leg of the task, the first phase of this task, is to call or to bring back to him Jacob and to regather to him Israel. Now, just like a a 60-second lesson on the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, under David the king, we had a united kingdom. Under Solomon's his son, we still had a united kingdom. Under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom divided. The kingdom divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ten tribes go to the north. Ten, two tribes go to the south. The northern kingdom is led by a man named Jeroboam, and the southern kingdom is led by Rehoboam, and they are at odds with one another for years to come. Eventually, the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C. under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar and hauled off to the exile that Jeremiah says would last 70 years. This is the state of things still when we come to the time of the New Testament. It is going to be the mission of the servant to bring back Jacob and to regather Israel and to bring these disconnected tribes, what? Back together. But that would not be enough. It would not be enough to just restore the southern and northern kingdoms, which in fact, although we don't have too much time for that either but let me just say this is what begins to happen in the early chapters of the book of acts did not jesus command the disciples to tarry in jerusalem until the spirit from on high would fall upon them and empower them to be witnesses where in jerusalem and judea and to samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth jerusalem and judea are representative of the southern kingdom samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom And what what Jesus is saying here is, look, you're going to be my witnesses for the restoration of the southern and the northern kingdoms. You're going to pull these peoples back together to, in effect, constitute a new Israel. And then from that standpoint, then you will go to the nations, the uttermost parts of the earth. And if you just trace the opening chapters of the book of Acts, you see the gospel in chapters 1 through 9 moving through that southern region, through that northern region, and then in chapter 10, what happens? It's interesting, at the end of chapter 9, we find uh, Judea and Samaria, representative of those southern and northern kingdoms, we find them at peace. That's what it says at the end of Acts chapter 9. And when they're at peace, when they're at peace, Acts chapter 10 What's in Acts chapter 10? Peter goes where? To Cornelius. A what? A Gentile. And then we trace Peter for the next couple of chapters, and then we get to what? Acts 13. And Acts 13 is what? It's where we are. (laughs) And we're turning from what? Turning from the Jews to the Gentiles. You see that, that expanding picture of the gospel going out to the nations of the world. Isaiah 49.6 says, it's not enough just to bring back Jacob. It's not enough just to restore Israel. I want you to do what? I want you to be a light to the nations. I want you to bring salvation to the very ends of the earth. Paul sees his commission. It is a divine commission rooted in this particular text. Ananias in chapter 9 verse 15 had been told that Paul was God's chosen instrument. The Holy Spirit has set both he and Barnabas apart from the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 verses 1 to 3 for their work. Paul himself had been confronted by the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul recounts in Acts chapter 26 and verse 18 these words where he says he was divinely sent to the Gentiles. Listen to the text in Acts 26, 18. He is sent to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. With this, Paul is in no doubt of the divine origin of his commission. This is not just Paul bored. This is not just Paul not knowing what to do with his time. This is Paul being confronted by the glorious Christ and sent on mission for God. Well, this brings up a second point to note regarding the command. Paul and his fellow apostles are truly unlikely recipients of such a directive. So note with me second, the unlikely recipients of this command. There is an unlikely transference of responsibility for the fulfilling of this command in light of the original one—the original ones who were given this command. Now, you might think, if I ask the question, who was originally given this command? You might think, well, you know that great Sunday school answer, Jesus? Was Jesus originally given this command? No. The original recipients of the command to be a light to the nations... And to bear God's message of salvation to the end of the world were God's servant, Israel itself. Isaiah makes clear that Israel had been called to be God's witness to the nations. To bear the light of his glory for all to see and to savor. But Isaiah also highlights that Israel is an unfaithful servant. They were called to bear the light, the light of, of God to the nations. You might think, for example, an illustration of this in the book of Jonah. is called to what? is called to go and bear the message of God's saving grace to Nineveh. But Jonah finds himself what? In the bottom of a boat on the way to Tarshish. He's, he's not about to go do that. He has no interest in seeing the Ninevites forgiven or given mercy. In fact, Isaiah highlights several things about the nation of Israel rather than being a faithful servant in Isaiah 40 she's a complaining servant in Isaiah 41 she's a a servant that's afraid also she's anxious Isaiah 42 she is a servant that has grown deaf to the hearing of God's word later in Isaiah 42 she's blind to God's glory In Isaiah 42 verse 24 she is characterized as a disobedient servant but she did all of this as God's servant. She was simply an unfaithful one. Thus, in the words of one writer of, regarding our text in Isaiah 49, verse 6, Israel was originally envisaged as having a destiny to be the witness to God to all the nations of the world. But to this task, they had failed, demonstrating the need for another servant. For God will Isn't it true that God will have his glory known? God will have his fame heard of. God will have his glory seen. If we look back in Isaiah 49, if you're still there, let me just direct your attention to verse 5. Isaiah 49 in verse 5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Now, Now, this is... This is the servant himself speaking. We already saw down in verse 6, God speaking to the servant. But in verse 5, the servant himself is speaking. And notice what he says. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. In other words, the servant who is here speaking sees himself distinct from the Israel that he is supposed to bring back to God. They're two different entities, we could say. It is the work of the faithful Israel, the servant that Paul is pointing to in Acts chapter 13. Though original, original Israel was unfaithful in the fulfilling of her task, Christ as the true Israel will fulfill the task and now he is passing along the responsibility of carrying this task to its completion to the church paul and barnabas in acts chapter 13 look over go back to acts 13 Paul and Barnabas are able to fulfill this mission of bringing light to the Gentiles and bringing salvation to the ends of the earth because of their identification with the perfect servant who enables his followers to carry out his mission. Look back in Acts 13, 47. The command that Paul sees as now directed to us. Do you see that there in verse 47? For so the Lord has commanded us. And he quotes, at that point, Isaiah 49:6. But we just saw in Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah 49.6 wasn't about Paul. Isaiah 49.6 is about the servant. And the servant is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. But now Paul sees this command of the father given to the son as now weighing upon him and upon Barnabas and by extension the apostolic band of brothers. Paul and Barnabas are able to to fulfill this mission of being a light to the Gentiles and bringing salvation to the ends of the earth because, hear this again, their identification with the perfect servant who enables his followers to carry out his mission. C.K. Barrett, a scholar of old, said this. He said that Paul is a light to the Gentiles only in virtue of the Christ he preaches. Christ is a light to the Gentiles as he preached to them As he's preached to them by his servants. If you flip over to Acts 26 for a moment, I hope your finger is loosened up because we're going to flip a few more places. In Acts chapter 26, verse 23, when the apostles went out to the nations to preach the gospel, we've already seen here that that this original command was given to Christ as God's faithful servant. We see in Acts 13, 47, this commission given to Christ as God's faithful servant now being passed on to his apostles. But when that happens, it is not as if Christ is left behind. I want you to notice what happens in Acts 26, verse 23. Paul says, in verse, well, let's back up to verse 22. So having obtained help from God, I stand, Paul says, this day to testify both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, don't don't read that too fast. Look back with me at those last few words. Paul is saying here that in his going out to preach... Who is really preaching? Look at the end of verse 23. He says that he would be the first to proclaim light. Now, the New American Standard helps us here a little bit. It it writes that out as a capital H. Now, you know, that's a translation issue there. But when it says here that he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, Paul's not speaking about himself. Paul is speaking about Christ. Now get this. Get this. Jesus has died, has been buried, has been raised again, has appeared to his disciples for 40 days, preaching about the kingdom of God, and then in Acts chapter 1 was taken up in a cloud on the other side. But Paul says, as I'm going out and preaching, Christ is preaching through me. And you might think, man, that's kind of arrogant. This is what happens friends in the preaching of the gospel this is why you should have a high view of preaching I'm just trying to promote my job I'm I'm not the pastor here The, the people of God are to have a high view of preaching why because it is in preaching that Christ himself comes to God's people and speaks to them this is how Titus can do what Titus is exhorted to in Titus chapter 2 at the end of the book. In the, in the chapter it says, these things, he says to Titus Paul, these things speak and exhort with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one, the word disregard means to think around. You know, people love to think around a preacher, right? They, he closes off this door so they come over here. He, he puts, It's like the dog in the neighbor fence, I got a brick up against my fence and it keeps sticking its nose under the fence i got to find some way to keep that dog in its yard. We love to think around the authority of the Word of God. We need to be confronted with the truth of Scripture as if it is the very living voice of Christ coming to me and preaching. This is what Paul says is happening in his mission. He would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. There are other places to look in Scripture for this high view of preaching, but I simply want to direct you here. There are others as well. But Paul, Paul and his apostolic band, they are unlikely recipients of this great command. I mean, who are they? They are no one. Paul says, I'm the chief of what? I'm the chief of sinners. Yet I've received such a task and such a command that Christ would, through me, preach the light of the glory of God to the nations of the world. Well, the true nature of the task is seen in a third observation, and I need to be quit. Andrew says we have to be out of here by two. So, all right, don't get uncomfortable. Be out at least by one. All right, number three, it's covenantal nature. When Paul goes to the nations with the gospel, he knows he is bringing a message that is of a covenantal nature. And here, we need to be brief, but in Acts 13, in verse 47, it says this, For so, for so the Lord has commanded us, he says this, God says this, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. That word, placed, it is—it's uh, a word that in Acts uh, or in Isaiah 49 verse six, uh, the word is "make." I've made you. In Isaiah 42 verse six, the word is "appointed you," and it's covenantal language. I've—I've I've placed you. I've appointed you. I've made you to be a covenant for the people. Remember, this was originally given to Israel as a nation, fail. It was then given to Christ as the servant of God, success and passed on to the apostles and to the church at large, ongoing. And by God's grace, it will come to its rightful end. But this idea of being placed and made and appointed, he is placed and made and appointed as a covenant to the people. This is what the Father does. The Father gives us the Son as a covenant. He makes in the Son a covenant with his precious people. Jeremiah refers to this as the new covenant. In other words, what is it that they were bringing to the nations? They're bringing nothing less than and listen, nothing other than the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that Paul says in Romans 1:16 is the what? It is the power of God for the salvation of sinners. Well, What was he to do with this covenant? What was he to do with this this message? Well, fourthly, the the broad scope. Notice the fourth thing about this command. It has a a breadth and a width that is almost unimaginable prior to this time. The broad scope of the command. He is to be a light for the Gentiles. He is to bring salvation to the very end of the earth. And these these are parallel ideas. Light, salvation, Gentiles, end of the earth. What kind of light? We're not just carrying light bulbs, are we? <laughs> you know, I'm not an electrician, all right? Light is 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 meant as a, a metaphor for salvation. People are in what? They're in darkness. Think back to what it was like before you came to Christ. You were in darkness. You were lost you were dead in your trespasses and sins and the light of the glory of God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ broke in to the darkness of your life just like God said in Genesis 1, let there be what? Light. You weren't just a little lost. <laughs> you weren't just a little dead. That's an interesting thought. I'm a little dead. I mean, what is, what is that? You were dead. You were lost. You were in absolute pitch black darkness. Nothing was there. And God spoke into your life and created light. How? Through the preaching of the gospel. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. And in Romans 10, it's the word of Christ preached. The breadth of the vision that was seen by Isaiah back in Isaiah 49, and we won't go back and turn there, but you can look back again later. Isaiah 49, 8 to 13. That's why I had him read all the way through 13. The breadth of that vision was a result of the work of the servant and the restored Israel in her missionary work among the nations. This work of reaching the nations is the fulfillment of God's promised word. Paul's saying in Acts 13, 47, quoting the Old Testament, he's saying this work you see now is the fulfillment of God's prophetic declaration hundreds of years ago through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. So we have seen in this brief text the command that is given to the church of divine origin. It is given to unlikely recipients. It bears a covenantal nature and it has a breadth of scope that encompasses the nations. But what, what do we do with such a command? Or perhaps I could rephrase it this way. The church, having received such a command, has been given a task to fulfill. What must she bear in mind as she goes forward in obedience to her Savior? I mean, Try to quickly give you four things. What do we do in light of such a command? Well, number one is this, and I'll read these a couple of times, but I want you to listen more than write notes. If you want to write notes, that's great. Um, some people think by writing notes, um, but the most important thing is I want you to think about these. Number one, knowing, knowing that this command is of divine origin, She, the church, is to go forward with the assurance that she has a divine commission and authority to fulfill her task. You, as a church, participate in that great commission, that desire to see the name of God. How how great is your name? We just sung that, right? How great is your name? Well, if his name is that great, it's to be what? It's to be told to the nations of the world, Knowing this is of a divine origin, this command is of divine origin, we are to go forward with the assurance that we have a divine commission and authority to fulfill the task. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You get the connection, right? Christ has all authority, holding the mediatorial office, in his kingdom of prophet and priest and king, therefore having all authority, go. I wonder if I'm supposed to go. I wonder if we should do anything in relation to that. I wonder if we should go. Knowing you have a divine command, we go. And we have power and authority for this as well. In Acts 1-8, he says, You will be my what? You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth, when will we be witnesses? Because of what Acts 1, 6, and 7 says, when the Holy Spirit what, comes upon you. He goes back and tells them in Luke chapter 24, I'm going to give you power from on high for the fulfillment of the task. We don't go forward in our own ingenuity. We don't go forward in our own flesh. We don't go forward with our own creativity and innovation. I want, I want to get a creative minister of missions. I don't want that. I want, a, I want a minister of missions. I want someone who's going to press missions upon the church. that's going to tell us to go forth with the gospel of Christ under the authority of Christ to the nations that Christ wants to reach. Secondly, this: the church must ever keep in mind the truth that she, she, has a calling indeed that is a gracious one of which she, in and of herself, is fully undeserving. We are, are we not? And I don't want to offend anyone here. But we are unlikely recipients of such a privilege of carrying the gospel of the everlasting God to the nations. Who would pick us? I would not have picked me. I would not have picked me. Remember what it was like when you were a kid on the playground? All right? And they were sizing up things for kickball? All right? And they were picking teams and they got team captains? I didn't get to be team captain. If I mistakenly got to be team captain one time, that at least assured me I'd get picked. I was little. I was, I was weak. I was not going to be the guy that's going to be picked. Couldn't even make the seventh grade basketball team. I had to play tennis and band. Yeah, you know about those guys. Well, I loved band. We thought we were cool, as long as we were disliked with us. And the tennis team, we thought we were cool as long as we were just with the tennis team. Nobody else, actually. The cheerleaders never came out and cheered for the tennis team. I'm not bitter, but you get the point. We are unlikely recipients. Paul says in, Acts, in 1 Corinthians 15, And last of all, he appeared to me. And last of all, he appeared to me. But he said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Beloved, by the grace of God, you are what you are. Therefore, we are commissioned to go with the most precious message to a needy world. Thirdly, I would say this, having a sure grasp of our authority and a clear view of ourselves, we the church must have an unmistakable understanding of the nature of the task. We have been called to a redemptive mission. Of all the things that we could do as a church, and i I don't really know all what you do as a church, so this is not meant to, like, step on anybody's toes and get Andrew in trouble. I don't know all the things that you do. I'm sure you do many things. But don't forget to keep the main thing, the main thing in what you do. Of all the things that you could do as a church, we clearly see there is one thing we must do, and that is to be a light and to be salvation to the very ends of the earth. Acts 26.18, we go forth to open men's eyes who are blind, to turn them from darkness to the light, to bring them from the dominion of Satan to God, and to grant them, listen, forgiveness of sins. That's what people need. It's, you you want to know how to minister to people's needs? Offer them the forgiveness of sins. Only you can do that. Only the church is given the gospel of Jesus Christ and only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring about the forgiveness of sins. I don't know why you came here today, but the one central message I want to say to you is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone is the forgiveness of sins. You may have a miserable life. You may have a broken marriage. You may have lousy kids. You may have lousy parents. I don't know what your life is like, but I know you have one thing. You have sin. You are dead in trespasses and sins unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ. I was once dead in trespasses and sins. But Christ awakened me and opened my eyes and brought me from darkness to light, from Satan to God, from a life that was full of sin, even as a little child. And he forgave my sin. And he will forgive me yours too the one who comes to me Jesus says I will never cast aside one last thing when we go when we go we go all the way our task is no small thing It encompasses, brothers and sisters, the very nations of the world. All peoples that on earth do dwell. The task of missions for the church that starts at home is unimaginable. We are reaching somewhere in the world a population of about 8 billion people. That's eight with nine zeros. Eight, zero, 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 zero. And if you're into decimals, then point zero zero more. Eight billion people almost on the planet. Missiologists have broken these down for us into people groups. And this is helpful, but it's still overwhelming. In 1982, at the Luzan Commission uh, in Chicago... They defined a people group as the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church-planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding and acceptance. The largest group, a people group, the largest group that the gospel can kind of move in without encountering barriers. What are these barriers to the gospel movement? Language is a huge uh, barrier to the movement of the gospel subdivisions that are based on dialects sometimes it doesn't even matter if you understand the language you're in some particular tribe or some particular area where the dialect is so it's like hanging around teenagers the dialect just gets so wacky doesn't it I, somebody on a text the other day shared some great news and one of the young people in the text group responded and said that is sick and I was like they were trying to say that's good right does it sick mean good or whatever when I was a kid bad meant good my dad would look at me like bad that well, means good, Dad. Don't worry. The Bible says something about people who say, beware of people who say heaven's means good. That's another story. <laughs> Cultural variations, economics, a caste system, religious traditions. These are, in many ways, some of the very things that Paul is encountering on his own missionary endeavors. These people groups, missiologists, have numbered at approximately 18,000. Now that helps. We've gone down from 8 billion to 18,000. But only about 3,000 or 20% of these have been significantly reached with the gospel. Did you hear that? Only three, 3,000 or about 20% of the people groups in the world have been significantly reached with the gospel. Another 7,000 or less, less than 40% of the remaining, they tell us, have been varyingly reached with the gospel. What does that even mean? They, they break varyingly down to partially reached, superficially reached, and minimally reached. In other words, they're not what? They're not reached. They're still considered unreached people groups. That that leaves us with 42% or 7,000 people groups who are unreached, completely unreached. In an unreached people group, there are by this categorization less than 2% of the people in those groups that pass for evangelical. In other words, only 2% of the people in those groups know the gospel. Let that sink in. At this point, 2,000 years after Christ said we were to be his witnesses to the remotest part of the earth, over 3 billion people, over 42% of the planet, still have practically no access to the gospel. No knowledge of Christ. No knowledge of his saving work. Of these 3 billion It gets even worse. Of these three billion, two-thirds or two billion are classified as frontier people groups. Frontier people groups live in areas of the world with less than 0.1% of the population knowing Jesus. Missiologists estimate there are almost 5,000 frontier people groups in the world. What does that mean? That means that over two, hear this, Two billion people in the world are in absolute and utter darkness. now all lost people are in darkness in their own mind and heart. But there are people out there in the world, two billion of them, 25% of the planet with no access to the gospel. We face, as a church, an unfinished task, do we not? And that's not those statistics are not meant to make you feel guilty they're simply to press upon your heart the need that still exists in the world. We have a divine command to go. We are an unlikely group to be given such a command but to us it was given. We send to the world those who have a message that is of the new covenant to bring men the forgiveness of sins, and we send them to the world because to the world we have been sent. This unfinished task that drives us to our knees, a need that is undiminished, often rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know, we who rejoice to know our God, renew before his throne the solemn pledge we owe to God to go and to make him known. We go, brothers and sisters, to all the world, as one writer has said recently, with kingdom hope unfurled. Why? Because no other name has power to save but the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray and I pray for you. I pray for us. We will continue to pray for you. We ask you, we, we plead with you to pray for us. We need to know this. We need to feel the weight of this. Not that we might feel guilty and just walk out of here with our tail between our legs, but so that we might press forward in the commission that Christ has given to the church to bear the message of the glorious Christ so that men might see his fame that they might declare his name that they might come to worship and love the god who has loved us from before the foundation of the world may god give us grace as his church to do these very things let's pray together father we're so thankful to you for your word we're so thankful for the gospel that has Providentially and sovereignly intersected our lives. We are thankful for your love for us. We are overwhelmed that you would have chosen us, God. That you would take the likes of us and give them such a precious treasure. Oh God, there's, God, send us, send us forth from this very place with a greater sense of urgency, a greater sense of hope, knowing that you have not only commanded us and commissioned us, but, God, you have promised us. The Gentiles will listen. They will. You are calling out from every nation and tribe and tongue and language of the world a people for yourself, and they will listen. We ask, O God, this day for your glory, for the display of your fame, that you would send us forth. May Christ be for us our greatest treasure we want to share with the world. Oh God, we pray this for your glory and for our good and for the joy of all the nations of the world. May I ask in your name.